heads uh, and welcome to what is sure to be a grim and depressing and even upsetting american prestige i'm danny bessner here as always with derek davison and uh we're here uh perhaps unsurprisingly to do another update on the ukraine situation in light of, of vladimir putin's um invasion of ukraine it appears to be at least from what i saw yesterday it is now 7 30 pacific time 10 30 eastern time and that that putin has actually invaded outside the donbass at least those were initial reports so derek um why don't we just start with literally what has happened what appears to have happened since yesterday uh yeah so putin delivered a speech thursday morning um that uh announced a special military operation to quote unquote protect the donetsk and luhansk people's republics whose independence uh he recognized uh in a speech on monday um and in fact there, there's some reason to believe that he recorded the Thursday morning speech on Monday. He was wearing the same clothes he was wearing on Monday. Uh, he just had the general, I mean, he was sitting in the same position. There's just a lot of similarities between uh, these two videos. And so there's there's some speculation that uh, he had this one in the bag already and, and was apparently, if that's the case, planning this uh, all along. He just kind of strung things out for a couple of days. Um, since then, I mean, I don't want to get into like nitty gritty details because they'll be out of date by the time most people listen to this. But uh, there have been multiple reports of what are probably missile strikes on several Ukrainian uh, cities, or at least the areas around several major Ukrainian cities, Odessa, Kharkiv, uh, Kiev, the capital, obviously, uh, Lviv in, in western Ukraine. Uh, there are reports of Russian troops crossing the border from Belarus in the north, uh, crossing the border near uh, Kharkiv, which is the second largest city in Ukraine and is in uh, the east. Uh, Russian soldiers moving north from Crimea, um, there have been casualties, uh, you know, I've seen, uh, 40 Ukrainian soldiers killed 10 civilians. That was a while ago though. So I'm sure it's, uh, there've been more since then. And there will be more by the time, again, people listen to this. Um, so, uh, it looks at this point, like, uh, a bigger invasion, uh, as you say, it looks like. Uh, he's not just invading the Donbass. I, I, I think we we need to be careful about trying to uh, ascertain exactly what Russia is doing at this point. It's very early. There's a lot of fog of war. There were you know conflicting reports of uh, clashes overnight that uh, you know went out and sounded very ominous and then were retracted later. So I think it's. Uh, it's it's good to be a little prudent about what exactly is going on, and and I don't know that we've necessarily crossed over to the point where this is a full blown occupy the capital regime change operation. This could still be something um, like an escalated. Uh, 
war Georgian war from 2008 being the model or um you know could be something akin to the Kosovo intervention from by in in the late 90s uh, that NATO undertook it's not necessarily um the total nightmare scenario but it looks like it it certainly could be that yeah, we're inching closer we're, to a we're getting total closer, nightmare. closer yeah. to the place where you would say uh you know that's that's what's happening so just before we move on, could you maybe explain what Russia did in Georgia in 2008 and how what's happening now in Ukraine either mirrors or doesn't mirror that? Sure. I mean, we talked, we've, we've talked about this in one of our previous uh, updates. I can't remember which one uh, on this story, but the, the Russians, um, you know, somewhat similarly, you know, somewhat similar circumstances. There were uh, two breakaway, small breakaway republics in Georgia, Abkhazia and South Ossetia um, that had declared their independence. Russia was supporting them, eventually recognized uh, their independence. Um, in the midst of uh, an exchange of, of really kind of energetic exchange of artillery fire between the Georgian military and I think the South uh, Ossetian uh, forces, I may be wrong, it may, be, may have been the Abkhazian forces, uh, but one of the two of them, uh, the Russians intervened, um, they occupied, you know, uh, under the guise of, of peacekeeping, again, kind of like what they've talked about here and sort of protecting these republics, uh, they occupied the territory, uh, they conducted airstrikes and, and some, you know, expanded operations outside of those two republics to, to kind of uh, wipe out as much of Georgia's military capability as they could. Um, similarly to what the Russians have done here, I mean, a lot of these early strikes have been against military facilities. It sounds like they've taken out um, all of the Ukraine's major military uh, air bases, uh, and you know, dozens of other military facilities have been attacked. Um, it's been mostly an air operation so far, although, again, as I say, there have been reports of Russian soldiers crossing into Ukraine from, from uh, all angles. Um, so, I mean, I think at this stage, again, it's, it's hard to know what's coming, but uh, th there are some parallels with, with what happened in Georgia, and there were concerns back then, if I remember correctly, and it's been, you know, 14 years now, but uh, there were concerns that maybe Russia had deeper aims there, that they were going to roll into Tbilisi and uh, occupy the entire country. So, um, you know, all, all this is to say, I think it's it's just good to be uh, kind of careful about uh, about talking about what's actually happening and not, you know, what we think might happen or, or what, uh, you know, what is un, you know sort of unconfirmed uh, anything that's unconfirmed and that sort of thing so that's my question about confirmation um have the troop movements from basically central northern central ukraine um, into northern central ukraine and and southeastern ukraine have those been confirmed uh yeah the, the, there's some uh direct there's some camera footage uh, that's come out of Russian forces crossing the border in the north from Belarus, from uh, uh, Crimea, it looks like. There have been witness reports of uh, Russian forces uh, inside Ukraine, inside the parts of Ukraine that are, you know, as we said, lie outside the Donbass region. Um, so I think that's pretty well confirmed. The things that are um more speculative and again that i would i would kind of 
take with a grain of salt are reports of specific um, attacks, specific instances of, uh, like, for example, there was a report last night of uh, an amphibious Russian attack on the city of Odessa that was then retracted. Now I see, you know, there's some report that maybe there was some fighting near Odessa. So, uh, you know, it's back and forth. And I, I, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I'd be careful about is, is the, uh, the very specific, like this is, you know, this happened. Um, the, the, the claim, I mean, the claim that I just, um, mentioned that Russia's destroyed, uh, Ukrainian air bases and, and dozens of military facilities. That that's probably unconfirmed too. I mean, that's the Russian military's uh, assessment of what how things have gone so far. So the, you know, that should probably be considered um, unconfirmed as well. Uh, so, is it fair to uh, say anything about how the Ukrainian military has been performing? Uh, obviously, it's early days, but is there anything that we know? Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. Um, it's been. Uh, I mean, I've seen images of Ukrainian military vehicles kind of, you know, smoking at the side of the road, which, uh, you know, is not uh, not good uh, for them, I think. Uh, on the other hand, they've claimed they've made some claims about sort of uh, uh, blunting some of the early Russian offensives, like the one near Kharkiv, for example. Um, I, I would be careful about all of that. It's, it's again, early fog of war, all that, all that, all the stuff I've been, uh, saying here. Um, uh, it seems like the Ukrainians, um, did back off from the border. They seem to have allowed the Russians, uh, to come in. Um, I, I am obviously no, uh, military tactician, but that seems smart to me. Um, they're they're badly overmatched in a in a you know straight up contest against the Russian military. So defending the border probably would have been pointless and would have gotten a lot of uh, a lot of military units lost. So um, you know I, I I don't think it's I, I I don't think we can make any sweeping claims at this point, uh, other than you know they seem to be kind of falling back to maybe more defensive positions but again I'm, I'm even speculating about that have there been any responses from the ukrainian political elite um to the russian invasion um i mean volodymyr Zelensky, the president of ukraine has given a couple of speeches he gave one um actually wednesday evening it was sort of an impassioned like last minute uh plea for for russia not to invade um, he's that since given a couple of hurried, uh, kind of video, uh, recorded on his phone, probably, um, addresses. He announced martial law. He called on, uh, Ukrainians to resist and, and, and that sort of thing. And, and kind of tried to offer some comfort that, um, you know, the, the Ukrainian military is doing its job. Um, you know, beyond that, I mean, there've been, uh, he's called for, uh, the West to to you know hit Russia with the uh, sanctions to uh, send weapons you know that 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 type of thing but uh, again it's it's um, early hours so you know I, I think a lot of people are uh, in meetings in uh, and and or uh, relocating to to places that are maybe safer than Kiev is right now um, has anything happened at the United Nations? 
so one of the ironies, I guess, of this, or uh, maybe not irony, but uh, is that Putin's speech ran on Russian TV while the U UN Security Council was holding a meeting on this situation, and it was um, interesting uh, in a morbid sense to watch um, kind of on Twitter as people were, uh, reporters were kind of uh, commenting on what was going on at the meeting, to watch as the, uh, the delegates, the representatives of the Security Council countries made a clear switch from reading the prepared remarks that they had put together prior to the invasion uh, to speaking in the moment about what was actually happening. Um, that's, I mean, the, the Security Council meeting was basically, um, you know, just everybody haranguing Russia, uh, the Russian delegation. Um, you know, there's there hasn't been anything substantive to come out of the UN, and, and there probably won't be because, frankly, the UN General Assembly isn't designed to do anything substantive, and the UN Security Council uh, is uh, controlled by the five permanent members with their vetoes, and two of those members are Russia and China. China has been uh, somewhat cool about uh, the events of the last few hours, uh, but certainly Russia uh, with a veto is going to prevent the Security Council from doing anything to, to uh, you know, taking any action to counter what's what's gone on. So now that we've explained just where we are um, situationally, and, and again, I think we should underline that this is really a fog of war moment and things that are being reported now will later turn out to be incorrect, things that we don't know uh, we'll later find out about. So just want to underline that. But this does seem to be, I would say, a pretty unpredictable um, thing that Putin did, even though U.S. intelligence did predict it, and I want to talk about that in a few minutes. But um, from your vantage point, Derek, why do you think Putin made this this leap, th this rather drastic action? Because I think when we were talking in the last few weeks, it seems like there's not much that Putin could really gain from a full occupation of Ukraine and underlining that we're not quite there yet, but that has become a lot more likely. It seemed like he was going to do something similar to what he had done in Georgia in 2008, which is basically keep these peripheral paper states um, on Russia's side um, to destabilize um, parts of Ukraine in order to maintain the Russian Federation's power in the region. But this is a, a big, uh, a big leap. So why do you think, uh, why do you think it happened? What do you think Putin's thinking uh, on the uh, geostrategic level? I mean, I, 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 at this point, I don't, I really don't know. I mean, I, I uh, I've been approaching this as though uh, Putin were rational, uh, and I think mostly because a lot of the the discourse you hear from uh, foreign policy folks is that he's, you know, a megalomaniac. He's completely irrational. He's lost his mind. He's Hitler reborn, etc. And I think it's very dangerous to uh, dismiss. Uh, you know, it's kind of uh, our declared adversaries uh, in that way. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what he's doing now. I mean, a, a rational, uh, a rational decision. This is not a rational decision. A rational decision uh, would have recognized that the the key uh, demand that Russia made, the number one demand, which was Ukraine not joining NATO was already fulfilled or could be fulfilled, uh, it could be secured uh, through uh, something less than a, a full-scale invasion. So if that's, if that's what hap is happening, I, I, I really am not sure uh, why he's doing it unless, you know, you start, you get into these like, 
uh, Russian nationalist, uh, kind of, you know, centuries old, what is Ukraine really, if not, you know, part of Russia? And, uh, you know, if that's really what's motivating him here, then, you know, that I guess that explains it. It's also uh, pretty troubling if that's, uh, if that's where he's coming from uh, at this point. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, I really, I'm, I'm kind of at a loss to try to explain this decision. I think uh, an extended war, um, I, I don't think it will be terribly extended. I mean, if you, if you, if you're just talking about the military on military phase, uh, Russia is, is uh, outclasses the Ukrainian military in, in pretty much every way. Uh, but to do the things that Putin has been talking about to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine, I mean, that's regime change. Uh, you know, again, I don't, the denazification is, is a loaded term, especially for a country with a Jewish president. Um, but that, that's regime change language. Um, you know, he questioning Ukraine's statehood, the, the sort of legitimacy of Ukrainian statehood, uh, speaks to almost an annexation type of mindset. And both of those would require an extended occupation of a country that, frankly, most of the people uh, despise Vladimir Putin. I mean, they've spent eight years kind of learning to to despise Vladimir Putin and, and Russia as an extension of that. Uh, and I don't think it's going to be very pretty. We've seen what happens to extended occupations uh, with extended occupations in, in Iraq and Afghanistan on the U.S. side. Um, you know, this is this this has the potential to be something like that for Russia and, and and I don't know how any rational world leader could have observed what's gone on for the last 20 years on the from the US uh, and think that this would be a good idea that this is something you should do and it, it could definitely work uh, it just seems bonkers to me so given that uh, I want to focus on potential motivations or sort of push factors as we call in history as to what might be motivating Putin. And the first one I want to ask about is personal psychology. Um, I've been hearing some things about, you know, Putin having, you know, um, what would be the right word, uh, becoming more erratic, let's say, during COVID isolation. So personal psychology, do you think there's any credence to something along uh, those lines? And then I'll go on to other motivations, but just looking at the man himself, has there is there a personal psychological explanation that you find, you know, partially appealing in any way? I mean, there are a lot of, of factors that could go into that. COVID uh, is one, he's isolated himself by all accounts pretty uh, pretty heavily, which can do things to your uh, your psyche. He's older. He's looking at the end of his political career or life, really. Um, he's in his second term as president. He's fixed the Russian constitution so that he can stay in that office as long as he wants, basically. But he's, you know, he's getting getting up there. He's, I think, 69 or 70 at this point. And uh, there were rumors just last year, I think, about his health. Um, and all of this is, is very speculative. And I, I don't like to to do this kind of thing and sort of armchair psychoanalyze somebody. Uh, but, you know, any of those things could be, could be fueling a, a sort of reaction that like, you know, he, he feels like his legacy is, is built up in this kind of uh, relationship with Ukraine. And he's trying to fix that by force of arms, or he's just got a lot of resentment about NATO and the United States and the way that uh, he feels Russia has been treated over the last, uh, you know, let's say 20 to 30 years. Uh, and he's trying to get that out. It's, it, you know, it's, it's all, it's all very speculative, but, but there are certainly 
That it is certainly a possible explanation for some of this. Yeah, there's a miasma of reasons. And then whenever I see a geopolitical choice that seems to not make geostrategic sense, um, I oftentimes find that the source of that choice could be found in domestic politics, uh, in Russian domestic politics. Is there anything you could say about Putin's relative position within the Russian hierarchy or what's been going on within Russia domestically that might help explain what appears to be a rather bizarre choice? It's, um, yeah, I mean, there's certainly, uh, he's certainly responsive from, from what, you know, by all accounts, you know, the way this works is he's at the head of the table, but uh, also surrounded by a, a group of very wealthy Russians, uh, you know, call them uh, oligarchs. That's become a somewhat ethnically loaded term. Uh, but, uh, you know, these are the guys who looted the state, basically, when when uh, we implemented uh, shock doctrine capitalism in the 90s and, and broke up uh, uh, the Russian state and privatized it um you know he he's uh, i i mean i would think everything that i've seen about the the inner workings of that um cadre and it's not much and i, I distrust a lot of it because uh, it's very much outside looking in type uh, speculation um but everything i've seen suggests that he's he's pretty comfortably in charge of this group of people it's not um, you know, it's it's not a relationship where he's like the the bag man for a bunch of more powerful people or anything like that. That said, I mean, you know, in a sense, uh, you know, you could you could look at it as a uh, like you would look at an organized crime syndicate where right. you know even the boss is even if the boss is is well established and is you know set up in a uh, in, in a fairly strong position, there could still be challenges to that so yeah i mean this this is a possible angle um i don't know the extent to which the people in that inner circle that the elite uh, of the elite are are really uh, as as hell-bent on like russian nationalism as putin is i mean these are people who have business interests all over the world uh they're very vulnerable to sanctions uh, this is this is the kind of situation where you can imagine sanctions actually working to some degree um you know you've got people who own property all over the you know in london and they've got uh properties in the united states they've got money in banks all over europe that, that can be uh, taken away from them um, I, I can't imagine that that they're all particularly happy risking that on on this military adventure, and yet, um, you know, there's no sign of any internal uh, discord. All we've seen so far are a few scattered uh, anti-war protests in a couple of Russian cities, and the Russian uh, Russian authorities have already, you know, uh, made uh, some ominous announcements to, you know watch out and about you know think twice about joining any of these protests uh they arrested one uh, anti-war at least one prominent anti-war uh, activist for uh, supposedly you know planning protests like that um so you know there is there does seem to be a little bit of public pushback um but it's 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 muffled at best um and i, I really couldn't couldn't say what the dynamic is inside the uh, the sort of inner circle at this point. 
And uh, let's return now to what you were talking about in terms of Putin's historical vision, because I've seen some analogies um, to, you know, the invasion of Iraq. But I think this is of a different quality. Um, the, the relationship between the United States and Iraq isn't really analogous to the historical relationship between Russia and Ukraine. So uh, I know we had joked once that we we haven't gone back to Kiev Rus or Kiev and Rus. I, I don't know how you <laughs> pronounce that correctly, but maybe you could just give a sense of sort of the historical imagination that someone like Vladimir Putin has vis-a-vis Ukraine. And and something to consider, for example, is that, you know, many Soviet leaders, leaders of the Soviet Union had strong ties to Ukraine. Brezhnev was himself, I believe, from Ukraine. Uh, Khrushchev spent a lot of time um, in Ukraine, I believe, in the Donbass, uh, gave, quote, quote, unquote, gave Crimea uh, to Ukraine, I I believe, in 1954. Um, So, you know, when you have leaders of the Soviet Union with strong attachments to the country, it's not quite the same thing as the United States invading Iraq. And I'm not apologizing or anything like that, but I'm, I just want to give a sense of what does Putin think? What does he view Ukraine as? And maybe you could even just give a little pricey on sort of this macro historical, you know, this this mythic empire from the Middle Ages, and then uh, in more recent times. Um, I mean, yeah, is if we go by what he said, uh, what he said on Monday, and what he's, you know, alluded to in, in some other public comments. I mean, he regards Ukraine as uh, indivisibly part of Russia. He also regards Belarus that way, but he doesn't have any problem uh, with Belarus. Uh, you know, the Belar- Belarusian president, Alexander Lukashenko, is is somewhat uh, enthralled to Russia at this point, especially lately. Um, but, I mean, you, you know, this, this goes back, and yeah, I, I sort of hate to do this, but it goes back to the ninth century. It goes back to Kievan Rus, uh, which was a, a confederation of kind of Eastern Slavic and Baltic and, and Finnic um, principalities uh, that was founded in the 870s, I think, uh, that was ruled out of the city of Kiev. Um, it kind of waxed and waned for a, a few centuries by the, I would say, um, 12th century was really starting to come apart. The, the sort of, uh, component principalities were starting to come apart. The whole thing, uh, then collapsed for good, uh, when the Mongols sacked Kiev in, in the 1240s. Um, and that led directly to the rise of, uh, one of the eastern principalities in this confederation, which was based in Moscow, the Muscovy, you know, and, and this was Muscovy, early yeah. Muscovy. Um, so uh, the, the the for for this strain of of Russian nationalism, I mean, you trace the history of Russia all the way back to uh, Kiev and Rus and the city of Kiev. Uh, you know, and it, you can sort of see how there's a there's a historic sense that these are one people that they they've, they have a shared history they have uh, a shared culture the, they do have slightly different languages but but not you know they're not a huge uh, difference between um, there are differences between uh, Ukrainian and Russian I don't want to minimize that but but they're you know definitely in the same branch of the the language tree let's say um you know they come off of the same branch uh so it's 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 an appealing kind of 
version of history, I guess. I, I think it's it oversimplifies um, the connections between these people quite a bit, and it, it is a misreading of uh, of history. But then, you know, you go through the uh, the rest of the story. You've got the Russian Empire. Uh, that emerges from Muscovy that, you know, always controlled at least part of Ukraine, what is now uh, Ukraine. Some of the Western parts were uh, variously at times in the Habsburg Empire or part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Uh, but definitely the Eastern parts, the the the, the parts that have been uh, the particular focus uh, of uh, Putin's interests, the, the Donbass, Crimea, uh, Kiev, you know, uh, Kharkiv, especially, you know, before 2014 had a very, you know, Russophilic, uh, um, had a large Russophilic component to its population. Um, you know, all these places are, were unquestionably have been in, in that uh, Russian orbit for a very long time. And that's, uh, I mean, that's, I think, where he gets this idea from. I don't think it's fair to uh, the Ukrainian people or to the, the nation of Ukraine today to kind of project that history and, and use it as a, a cudgel to decide that uh, this state is not legitimate and should not exist, uh, which is, again, the direction that some of his more uh, extremist rhetoric points. Uh, but that's, I, I mean, I, that's, to you know, I, without getting in his head and knowing exactly what uh, what he thinks about when he talks about these issues, um, I, I assume that's that's where he's coming from. Yeah, and he also has for a long time um, invoked the concept of Ruski Mir, which is the Russian world, which right. um, according to which an again, article— Which again incorporates Belarus in, along with uh, Ukraine and, and Russia. I mean, and it's also the reason why he can— do something like this, he can deny the legitimacy of Ukraine as a, a former Soviet, as an ex-Soviet state, and then turn around uh, and reassure all the other ex-Soviet states that, you know, look, I'm Ukraine's a special case. I'm not talking about you. Don't worry about it. Um, because, you know, he, he, he does view Ukraine as a special case historically. Right. I, I think that's right. And and there's also, you know, indications that, that this is a really central part of Putin's thought. So, for example, and I'm, I'm citing an article in The Conversation by Jacob Lassen and Emily Channel Justice, and we'll put a link for it um, in um, the, the show notes. But, you know, in 2008, Putin's spokesman, Vladislav Surkov, claimed that, quote, Ukraine is not a state. Um, Putin has written an article claiming that Russians and Ukrainians are, quote, one people, a single whole. And then in 2016, um, Putin uh, put up a 52-foot statue of Prince Vladimir of Kiev in Moscow. Um, so there's there's long been indications that this forms a central part of his historical imagination. And I think when one combines that fact with Putin, it seems to me, thinks that his career is genuinely winding down, um, that he wants to, you know, make a grand move to be um, remembered in history as one of the great Russian leaders, that this seems to make a, a lot of sense from him, his perspective, if he does do a full-scale invasion. Um, so moving, uh, sorry, Derek, please, you have something to say? No, I was going to say that that that's all very plausible. I think that's a very plausible scenario. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I think I think this makes a lot of sense. This is oftentimes leaders when their careers are winding down do more dramatic things, um, and and this fits into that pattern. Um, so I want to think there's a lot to talk about, but I want in a best case scenario from Putin's perspective, what happens? What is absorbing Ukraine? Um, Either as you know a, a federated ally or literally into the Russian Federation, what is what does that do for Russia's geostrategic position? Just facts on the ground. 
Um, I mean, yeah, the, the best case scenario is Ukraine, uh, you know, he, he rolls through Ukraine, uh, puts a, a government in power in Kiev that's, um, you know, led by somebody akin to uh, Alexander Lukashenko in, in Belarus, who is uh, friendly to Russia, uh, authoritarian, um, you know, even Lukashenko for a while, you know, for the last few years, uh, uh, prior to uh, the uh, the August election uh, in 2020 that, that caused everything to, uh, his relationship with Europe to go into the, the dumper, uh, even Lukashenko was sort of flirting with the EU and flirting with the uh, Western, uh, improving his relations with the West, but he's now, you know, that's that door is foreclosed to him. So I think what Putin would like uh, is somebody like Lukashenko uh, in uh, in power in Kiev who would be a, a reliable um, vassal state, basically a reliable vassal uh, ruler, and uh, then he would like the rest of the world to move on. He would like everybody to say, "Okay, well that's done, and there's there's nothing we can really do to to change it and to uh, roll back whatever sanctions have been imposed already and and are coming." Which I think, uh, you know, could be quite serious, even. Uh, knowing that the Russian government has spent the last several years sanction-proofing its economy to the best it can, uh, these are going to be painful uh, sanctions. That said, uh, some of these steps, like like you know, uh, cutting the Nord Stream two pipeline or shutting it, keeping it shut down, um, you know, could be very painful for for Europe as well. So, uh, you know, he's going to hope that Russia can outlast. The rest of the world that this you know the 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 degree of preparation that he's made uh for a, a period of heavy sanctions will allow you know will allow him to ride that period out and the rest of the world is you know going to feel the pain uh, or feel the pinch before he does and and will um you know kind of uh, uh kind of cave in before russia it reminds me of sort of medieval siege warfare where you would prepare yourself for a long siege in order to outlast the people who are surrounding you. It's I kind mean, of an interesting... I mean, it is. And, and, you know, people who listened to, to uh, Nick last week, Nick Mulder, uh, that's, you know, it's war. It's warfare under a different guise. And so what would be the absolute worst case scenario for Russia in this situation? I imagine long insurgency akin to uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, something along those lines. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, I think that's a very likely scenario if the, if he really pursues, uh, and again, we don't know, and I don't want to assume anything, but if this is what he pursues, a full occupation, uh, he's going to have to deal with the, the ramifications of that, which is going to be a resistance movement. Uh, it's going to be very long, very bloody, uh, very difficult to manage. Uh, the same problems that the United States, uh, you know, has had had in Iraq, had in uh, Afghanistan, and at the end of the day, uh, if Russia is not able to to deal with that, you're going to have uh, a government uh, eventually in Kiev that's even less uh, amenable to Moscow, that's even probably uh, pitched further to the right. Uh, you know, he's talked about we're talking about uh, denazification. This could be a real boon to the the far right in Ukraine if if uh, uh, if because because you can imagine a resistance movement 
being organized around some of the far-right paramilitary groups that have been um, active just in the, the Donbass war. Um, so, you know, that's, that's worst-case scenarios. This all basically backfires on him um, or backfires on his successor, which, you know, in that case, maybe he wouldn't, wouldn't care so much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Once he's out, it, it matters less to him. So how has the quote unquote West responded? What has the United States said? What have NATO leaders said, um, particularly in terms of are there going to be weapons transfers? Are there going to be troop deployments from the U.S. or NATO? Um, are there just going to be sanctions? What Not just, but are there going to be sanctions? What has the West responded? So uh, there's a few things. And again, I don't want to want to do the nitty gritty because it'd probably be um, uh, overtaken by events. But uh, NATO Thursday morning held um, uh, an emergency session. I think the the Eastern members of the alliance uh, invoked Article Four uh, of the the NATO Charter, which uh, calls for consultations. Um, it's not the self defense clause, Article Five, but uh, it requires everybody to get together and have a meeting about what to do. There are now reports of troop deployments to uh, additional troop deployments to Eastern Ukraine or Eastern NATO uh, member states, uh, maybe to, you know, just as a uh, hedge against uh, the Russians, maybe to prepare for uh, a wave of refugees, which is now suddenly very possible. Uh, it, it's, you know, it could be a, a number of things. Uh, so in terms of um, weapons transfers, uh, I think that's certainly on the table. Uh, if the war uh, phase of this, like the heavy war military to military phase goes, as I suspect it will, there may not be much of a Ukrainian military left in a few weeks uh, to transfer weapons to, but I would imagine that will still be uh, a consideration. I don't know what what it'll mean. Um, sanctions have already started. Sanction The sanctions started after... Uh, Monday night when Putin recognized the independence of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, the German government uh, froze Nord Stream 2, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, meaning, you know, uh, they can't stop, the, the construction's already done, there's nothing they can do about that, but they, they're not running, uh, they've frozen the process to certify it and start uh, f running gas through it. Uh, the U.S. has imposed sanctions on a couple of Russian banks and uh, a few uh, Russian, you know, oligarchic elites, uh, as has the EU. The EU sanctioned, I think, every member of the Russian Duma, the lower house of parliament. It was either every member or every member who voted to ratify Putin's uh, independence recognition. Um, so there's, there's a lot of sanctions that have already happened. I, I haven't seen... Uh, the next wave of sanctions. I think uh, uh, Biden chaired a meeting of the the G7 uh, Thursday morning, kind of another emergency meeting uh, to discuss sanctions, and and you'll probably see them uh, rolling out over the course of the day and then the next few days. Uh, you know, there's talk of slapping export controls on things like semiconductors that would basically prevent uh, Russia from importing semiconductors legally. Uh, there's talk of uh, putting all uh, all the major Russian banks, blacklisting all of them, which would prevent them from trading in uh, Western fi global financial networks. Uh, I think the United States has already imposed some uh, block on trading in Russian sovereign debt. 
which you know, it could have a, a serious economic impact. Uh, it sounds like uh, the the two things I will say in terms of kind of what's the limit here. Uh, it sounds like uh, everybody's agreed to stop short of sanctioning Vladimir Putin himself. Uh, mostly, I think, because they want to give themselves. Uh, some room to escalate further if if this continues down this road, uh, and if you if you sanction Putin personally, you kind of uh, you've gone all the way, so to speak. Um, and the other thing is, it, it sounds like uh, cutting Russia off from the SWIFT network uh, is not on the, t- the SWIFT financial network is not on the table uh, at this point. Um, economically, the other thing to, to talk about is, uh, what this has done to oil prices. Uh, they've gone, uh, to $105 per barrel and probably beyond that. Again, by the time people read this, uh, gold is up, gold prices are up, uh, you know, so Ruble's gas down. prices, I'm sure natural gas prices will be up. The ruble is down heavily. Um, so there are other kind of ancillary economic things happening here, although certainly they're uh, not the main consideration. It's one thing that I've noticed on Twitter is there seems to be like this this ratcheting up of uh, emotional feeling. Uh, people are, are saying this is going to be World War Three or something along those lines. What's your take on that particular take? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm all for people kind of keeping an eye on what the United States or what NATO are, are, are doing and, and uh, you know, reacting if it looks like there's going to be a direct military intervention. But I don't see that as a possibility. You know, Biden and, and pretty much every NATO government have, have flat ruled that out uh, precisely for the reason that you know, they, they don't want to start World War Three over Ukraine. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's good to be vigilant about that kind of stuff, but I don't think, um, there's any reason at this point to worry. Uh, I will say that Putin in his Thursday morning speech did kind of obliquely threaten to nuke anybody who gets uh, directly, uh, involved in this situation in a military sense to try and stop what he's doing. Um, so that's, I mean, obviously that's not, uh, the kind of rhetoric you, you like to hear, but, um, again, I don't think there's any plans for, to, to, to do that. Um, and I think the threat, uh, of, uh, a nuclear retaliation was already very much on the table without Putin kind of spelling it out. Right. Um, so that seems to indicate that the, there will be severe limits on what the United States or NATO would do. So one thing that we got to talk about, um, well, we've got to admit, is that U.S. intelligence seems to have been pretty right on with um, its predictions about what Putin was doing. So does that mean the left should always listen to U.S. intelligence from now on? Or what does this suggest <laughs> uh, about the intelligence community? Because I think this has been uh, this has been um, a lot. There's been a lot of discussion where people discuss these things primarily on Twitter about, you know, hey, turns out U.S. intelligence was right about these maximalist plans, or at least it seems like this is at least plausible. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And, and particularly, what should the left position be now on intelligence? Should we just say believe what the American state says from now on, or should we still continue to maintain a skeptical eye toward official proclamations? So I, I always think skepticism is the way to go, uh, no matter what. Sometimes you'll be wrong, sometimes you won't. Um, but that's true of of 
not just U.S. intelligence. I, I try to be skeptical of everything that any government says because they all lie, uh, and they they do it, you know, uh, regularly. Um, so I I wouldn't say you know the 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 answer here is to just say well uh, they were right this time so they we have to believe them uh, every time. Uh, to be to be perfectly honest, and I'm not trying to like. Uh, minimize the the fact that uh, you know a lot of people. I'm, I mean, you know, I think myself included uh, didn't see this coming, despite the the uh, constant refrain from from the U.S. government. Um, you know, we don't know that when you know you had. Anthony Blinken two weeks ago saying, you know, the Russians are going to invade uh, Wednesday morning at 730 or, you know, Jake Sullivan, like uh, doing a, you know, it's going to be this weekend thing three weeks ago or whatever it was. Uh, we don't know that they were right. We don't know that they were wrong. I mean, this looks like uh, a vindication to some degree of, of the m maximalist uh, warnings that they've been giving. Uh, but that assumes uh, that it's to some degree it assumes that putin has been stringing everybody along for the last four months basically since november since he began this latest uh, troop buildup, uh and that you know he's been planning this the whole time and there was really nothing anybody could have done that it was always in the cards uh that it would come out like this i i still don't believe that i think that that the reason it's taken him this long to get to this point is because there were opportunities at least he felt like he was giving providing an opportunity for somebody to uh, respond to the the security demands that he was making or the security concerns that he was articulating to engage in some uh, level of negotiation again I, I could I'm not in Vladimir Putin's head uh, clearly and it's it probably is uh, you know pretty uh, batshit in there at this point uh, but I I I don't think that this was, you know, the this was a locked-in outcome uh, four months ago or even four weeks ago. I think that there were opportunities to engage here that that may have been missed. Maybe they weren't missed. Um, you know, maybe Putin is is just being totally unreasonable, and there was nothing. Uh, anybody could do, but I, I think that he felt at least that he was, uh, uh, you know, leaving the door open for somebody to step in and, and satisfy his concerns short of war. Um, so I don't know that all the specific details of every leak that's come out of U.S. intelligence has been 100% accurate, although certainly, you know, the, in the at the end of the day, um, it looks like they were in the ballpark uh, in terms of, of the final outcome here. Yes, certainly. I think, and I think we have to admit that to be intellectually honest, they do appear to have been in the ballpark. So, do you think that there were opportunities that the, you know, the quote-unquote West missed here, um, or not really? What's your take on that as someone who's been observing this extremely closely? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that there was a dismissive attitude for for a few weeks here. Even even as the warnings were being made, like, you know, the troops are building up and he's made a decision. Uh, it's going to be a full-blown invasion. Uh, there was, the, and and even as the, you know, the Biden administration was talking about, you know, we want to have, we want to talk, we want to negotiate, we don't want to, you know, forestall uh, the possibility of an invasion. They were, they were somewhat dismissive of the diplomatic side of this. You know, you had uh, the Russians deliver this list of call it what you want requests concerns demands whatever and and 
you know, the Biden administration basically looked at it and said, okay, that's nice. And the Russians said they were expecting a, a, a written reply. This was several weeks ago. They were, you know, uh, we're expecting a written reply. We've given you this, you know, written document. And, the, uh, you know, for some time, the Biden administration was just very dismissive of that. They, they refused to, to uh, reply to this in writing. And then finally, after, uh, you know, the pressure kept growing, they finally agreed to uh, deliver a written response that, I mean, from what I saw of the, you know, and it was leaked to, uh, I forget the news outlet that that got it, but the the response was basically like, okay, we hear you, but no, <laughs> we, we you know we hear your concerns, but we're not going to do anything about it. Uh, so I do think there were there were opportunities missed here in the last few weeks. Um, I think the the real opportunities were missed though. Uh, years ago, decades even ago, you know, it's decisions that were taken in the 90s, decisions that were taken in the 2000s and 2008 when uh, George W. Bush basically strong-armed NATO into promising membership to Ukraine and Georgia. Uh, the decisions that were taken on that kind of timescale uh, locked locked in some paths here for for the player the main players in this uh situation and so you know i would i would look at it on uh, a more extended time frame and say yes there were a lot of things that um nato did wrong here or the west did wrong or the united states whatever you know uh however you want to slice it up uh did to contribute to what's what's been the the ultimate outcome here yeah, I think that's exactly uh, right. And it does suggest um, that Putin is, like we talked about in the last few episodes, is trying to assert Russia, uh, Russia as a great power and, and to make clear that, you know, if Russia wants to redraw world borders, it's it's going to do so. Um, and that also indicates a decline in relative American power, which I'm sure we're going to be talking about um, for the foreseeable future, a relative decline at least. Um, so I want to end on this, on this note. Um, so I have some thoughts about this, but what do you think uh, the left position, the American left position on this should be? Um, uh, I mean, I, I struggle with this because what what power does the American left have to affect anything? I, I mean, I'm right. Uh, right. So it's more of a moral question, so more of right? a moral like, question, right? So let's, let's think of morality. Cause I think the American left is not going to have any effect on what the United States government does, what the Russian government does, right. what the Ukrainian government does. So this is really, you know, a, an effective question, particularly given the fact that the American demos uh, doesn't really have much of a say in, in foreign affairs, but this is, you know, morals matter, ethics matter, how we think about things matter. So when the American left is thinking about this, you know, a left that in theory wants an internationalist political movement, wants to transcend nation states, wants a genuinely democratic world, um, but a left that nonetheless is contained within a nation state and in a world of nation states and, and has more at least public power perhaps or discursive power to affect the u.s government than other governments what what do you think the leftist position on this should be and i i should note that i have an article coming out in foreign exchanges hopefully sooner rather than later Derek. that's up to you uh on this on this question but i'm curious what do you think um yeah i mean i i am um it is somewhat affective but i look like there are things that people can focus on you can you know you can um 
focus on what happens to the Ukrainian people at this point. I know there's a, a strain of uh, thinking on the left that uh, Ukraine is entirely populated by Nazis, uh, which dovetails apparently with the, the thinking in the, the Kremlin. Um, not to say that, that leftists are supporting Putin or anything like that. Uh, you know, there there is a far right in Ukraine, and it is a, an old school far right. I'm not going to deny that. Uh, but the vast majority of the Ukrainian people are, are not of that persuasion. Um, and, you know, they're the people who are in bomb shelters now or who are fleeing, uh, you know, with whatever they could stuff in their cars this morning uh, to, to go either to Western Ukraine or maybe uh, even further into to Poland or, or, you know, try to try to get into some of the neighboring countries. So, I mean, I, I think first about uh, I'd look first at what's happening on the ground. The Russians, amid all these conflicting statements that they've been making over the last few hours, have suggested they don't intend to attack cities, that the the, the attacks or the, the explosions that have been heard uh, around these cities have, in fact, been targeting military uh, facilities, not population centers. Uh, who knows? That's something to watch to see if the, the Russians really uh, keep to that. Um, I would, you know, say focusing on what happens to the those Ukrainians that flee the country. Are they going to be taken care of in in uh, places that are not typically very welcoming to refugees, like Poland and and uh, uh, you know other countries in kind of Central and Eastern Europe? Um, I, you know, I would I would monitor that or, or watch that situation. And, and broadly speaking, I mean, I would think of this in terms of uh, it's like a worst case scenario for somebody who uh, is on the left and of a leftist mindset this this kind of situation this specific situation let's say empowers pretty much everybody that that uh, you should hate basically it empowers uh, the 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 Hawks in the United States it empowers the uh, defense companies that are going to be selling weapons over this uh, it empowers Petro states that are going to reap uh, and energy companies they're going to uh, uh, reap the benefits of $110 a barrel oil. Uh, it empowers that Ukrainian far right as, as you know, relatively small in terms of numbers as it is. It gives it a vastly more, uh, vastly larger platform. Um, it empowers what is a far right government really in Russia uh, and the far right elements in Russia that support Vladimir Putin. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a grab bag of all the worst people that you can imagine who are benefiting from this. Uh, and, you know, I would say uh, it's, it's, a, it's a lose-lose in every direction uh, if you are a, a leftist. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. And then um, I also think, given the historical record, um, a, a larger scale U.S. intervention is really um, something to be avoided and something dire. Well, I, I'm sure we'll be required to give some more updates on the Ukraine situation soon. Derek, thank you, as always, for your extraordinary knowledge and for talking to me. And thank you, American Prestige listeners, uh, for checking us out. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, everybody.